Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about polyamory, including what resources are out there for finding the polyam community for you? Are folks born polyamorous, or do they just become polyamorous over time? And how do we start to normalize the conversation on polyamory? I also share my interview with the brilliant and insightful Cassandra Heath. Cassandra is a registered psychologist whose job is to help you make meaningful connections with yourself and others. We are giving you Polyamory 101, and I couldn't have asked for a better guest to guide us through it. But first, today in sex. People who have multiple partners and who are polyamorous don't feel jealousy. Or at least, that's what I thought once. People have asked me how to manage their jealousy, and they assume that polyamorous folks are more highly evolved because they are above such ugly emotions, and instead they're all love and generosity. Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yes, I have witnessed incredible polyamorous relationships that are built on trust, commitment, and love. I think that is the ideal that polyamory strives for. But I have also seen people get hurt and be told that they're putting up boundaries that they need to unlearn in order to be fully polyamorous. This is where the book More Than Two, written by Franklin Vieux and Eve Rickert, comes in. I'm slowly reading my way through this book because it's one of the most recommended ethical guides to polyamory out there. It has helped a lot of people think deeply about their relationships and about what kind of life they want to build. It's also mired in controversy because of the recent revelation that Franklin abused Eve and other partners of his over the years, and more than two has been weaponized by other people to justify abusing their partners. I bought it before I knew this, and actually one of my Instagram followers messaged me to tell me about it and sent me an article written by Eve called What I Got Wrong and More Than Two, The Dark Night of the Soul. I highly recommend reading it, but there is one passage in particular that I want to share. She says, In polyamory, there is some stuff that we may genuinely want, that is purely because of conditioning that we do want to shed, and is going to be uncomfortable and that we want to get okay with, and that won't harm us if we do. I was eventually able to learn not just to accept, but to enjoy seeing my husband holding hands with his partner, or the look of bliss on his face when they kissed. And then there's other stuff that's really just not okay, that's harmful or abusive. Stuff like lying, keeping secrets, triangulating your partners, repeatedly springing decisions on someone that affect them without their input and gaslighting them when they complain. These are all things that happened to me, and for a long time, I thought it was my fault that it hurt, that I just needed to try harder. This passage struck me as the heart of defining what polyamory is and what it definitely is not. Polyamory does require us to unlearn a lot of social conditioning about monogamy, about what a normal partnership or family should look like. And yeah, sometimes it can hurt because boundaries are crossed and we need to communicate, communicate, and communicate even more. But polyamory does not mean the normalization of pain. We need to listen to these important feelings that our bodies are telling us. Listen to the feelings of hurt and what they are trying to tell us. Cassandra and I have a really wonderful discussion on jealousy in our interview that I don't want to spoil, but I do want to say that your feelings are valid, and what we really need to do is learn to listen more deeply to them. As Eve says at the end of her article, it shouldn't hurt. Not like that. You know what's best for you. Listen to yourself. Trust yourself. And now, let's get to your calls. Hey there, I'm Kevin from Brazil, and I'd like to ask you if you have any kind of suggestions for communities and groups or whatever in Facebook or Instagram, because lately, as I've not been in polyamory for that long, finding these groups and communities has been helping a lot because you feel embraced, you know, you feel you're not alone, and this is really helping me out, so I guess it probably may help other people around the world. Thank you so much for sending in your question, Kevin from Brazil. I, I really appreciate it. I think you're right that finding your community, even during COVID, is a really important part of feeling like you are in that polyamorous or non-monogamous community. 
There's a few things that I'm going to leave in the episode description for you to check out, but one that I've recently heard about is called Polly Pages, and they're on Instagram. They actually have an entire podcast where they read a lot of the literature about polyamory, and then they get into, you know, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? How do we open up a conversation and start to normalize and create community around polyamory? Also, it sounds strange, but the Reddit page for polyamory actually has a lot of really supportive people on there and a lot of really good information. Of course, as with anything that's on Reddit, you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt because a lot of people can access it. But as soon as you start going down those avenues, you start finding that sense of community. The really important thing to note here is that polyamory can mean something different for everyone. It's not like this one big global community that believes and practices polyamory in the same way. So it really depends on where you live and what access to community you have. The great thing about having access to the internet is that we can connect with folks all around the world so we can start to understand how do other people practice polyamory, what works for them, and we can start to figure out, okay, does that make sense for me? Is that something that I would want to try? I also know that there are a wide variety of Facebook groups, but a lot of those are really dependent on where you live. I know that in Canada and specifically on Vancouver Island, there are all sorts of private Facebook groups. And the great thing is that these are monitored to make sure that people are having respectful dialogues with each other. Just so you know, a lot of these places are about building community and not about trying to find folks to hook up with. There's something really funny that I can't remember exactly where I heard it, but they said, if you want to have sex, get into swinging. If you want to communicate, then yeah, that's what polyamory is all about. Unfortunately, another resource that I would have recommended is the More Than Two website, but with the recent revelations about Franklin's abuse, obviously I don't think that's a good resource to turn to. More Than Two is a book that I am enjoying reading, but so much of it points to how we can create unsafe spaces in polyamory and not every polyamorous community is going to be safe and work for us. As promised though, I have left some links in the episode description for you to check out some different community spaces on Instagram or Facebook and different websites so you can figure out what works for you. Let's take another call. Hey Leah, uh, I love the podcast. Uh, I love all the topics you guys discuss. Um, I would love to hear both of you guys discuss the idea of normalizing polyamory and open relationships. Being in an open relationship myself, we've met beautiful, wonderful people, but it also feels like we aren't allowed to share them with the world, some friends and even most of our family members. Do you think that this will normalize in the future? Yeah, thanks for the podcast. I think this is such an important question about what do we share about our relationships and who do we tell about them? The hard thing in polyamory, and this is not me speaking for the polyamorous community at all, but that there is still so much taboo and stigma about these types of relationships. In my interview with Cassandra, we talk a lot about a relational orientation, and I just find this idea so revolutionary. It can be really difficult to be open about who we are and about the relationships that we are in. Especially in professional settings, you know, what does it mean to disclose that you're in a polyamorous relationship? The unfortunate reality is that we need to be aware of what kind of impact that might have on our employability because there is still so much taboo and stigma. There's assumptions about who you are as a person, and for some reason, people feel like that has an impact on you as a worker. We know that this isn't true, but it doesn't mean that there aren't risks about being open about who we are. And on a personal level, yeah, I can imagine that it would be painful to not tell friends or family about someone that you really care about. We are so taught that we need to only have one partner who we do everything with. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, about how I like to think of close friends and family members as my life partners. I have multiple life partners because not one person can fulfill all of the needs that everyone has. For myself, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are in a sexual or romantic relationship with someone else, but the friendship that I have with someone that I've known my entire life, that's going to bring something different to my life than my relationship with Levi. They're both rich and beautiful, and no, I, I don't have sex with my childhood friend, but 
there was something about these relationships that nourish us and that, for lack of a better term, that turn on different parts of our personalities and get us excited for life in general. My hope is that having conversations like this on this podcast and other amazing podcasts and Instagram pages that I've shared in the episode description, that we can normalize it. Just as we have made huge strides for the LGBTQ plus community, and yes, we all know that there is so much more to do, but we have made huge strides. And I hope that polyamory is that next thing that we can start talking about, start being more accepting of the people that we love. The one thing that I want to say as well is that sometimes even when we tell friends or family about being in a polyamorous relationship, a lot of the time when you can have these sometimes difficult conversations, people can have knee-jerk reactions to it. So maybe they'll respond by being like, oh, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Like, can you not commit to one person? Or they make some sort of judgment call about you or your character. But know that that is their socialization coming through. They might not actually think that. Some of them might, but I think the thing is to give people time. Allow them to ask their questions, to have conversations about it. Because that's the only way we're going to start holding more space for polyamorous relationships and for them to be respected just as much as monogamous ones. Hey Leah, I have a question about monogamy and non-monogamy. Do you think that most people... I wouldn't say necessarily are born monogamous. I think we're all taught monogamy and being non-monogamous, but what are your opinions on people being everything? I think everyone's non-monogamous. We just, we learned monogamy. So yeah, I'd just like to, to know what you, you think on that. And caller, thank you so much for sending in another question. I know there is so much to talk about in terms of polyamory, and we are just scratching the surface, folks. This is why this is called Polyamory 101. Trust me, this is why there are whole podcasts dedicated just to polyamory. But you asked my opinion about if people are born polyamorous. And you know, I think a lot of people are. I think you're right that we are taught to behave and to think that our relationship should look a certain way. And a lot of the time, we aren't given the space to actually think about what that means for us. This is actually something that the queer community does a lot better than the straight community because if you've already had to think about who you are and how you move through the world and be really intentional about that because it's not the norm. I'm using my bunny ears, people. But because it's not the norm, you've already had to think more deeply about who you are and who do you love. If you're already questioning the man and woman get together, have two babies and have a white picket fence, if you're already questioning that then your mind starts to open up to other possibilities as well. Not to say that there aren't straight folks who aren't polyamorous, but I think when we hold that space to just think more deeply about who we are, then more possibilities are opened up to us. And what a gift that is. Also, oh caller, you are going to love this interview with Cassandra. So I'm just going to share one more thing and then we'll get into the interview, I promise. So before we get into the interview, I'm actually going to share some brief feedback about the previous episode. I got a voice memo from a listener on Instagram, and I was so pleased to get his take on the last episode, Does Penis Size Actually Matter? I want you to know that if you have feedback for the show, feel free to leave a review or even send me a voice memo on Instagram so we can hear it on the show. Hi, Leah. I just wanted to react to your last episode of your podcast. I just wanted to add that... Okay, size does not matter. You should not be ashamed or anything about your size. I just wanted to add uh, something about my personal experience. You see, my boyfriend is huge. And we had trouble make, having sex, in fact. So when you say size does not matter, I... I wanted just to add, in fact, um, that size does matter for the way you handle it. Because we had trouble for about the first month to do it properly. And so we had to learn together to have sex safely and, you know. So that's the only thing I wanted to add. 
size does matter because you have to learn how to handle it. Okay, bye. Love your podcast. Thank you so much. And yeah, you are absolutely right. It's not that size doesn't matter. It's communicating with your partner or partners about how to use it for everyone's pleasure. Yeah, that's what matters. And speaking of everyone's pleasure, I am over the moon to share my interview with Cassandra Heap. Without further ado, here it is. Okay, so yeah, tell me a bit about yourself and the work that you do and why are you so passionate about it? Well, I'm Cassandra Heap. I'm a registered psychologist. I practice in Calgary, Alberta, and I specialize in relationships in all forms, in all the wonderful diversity that exists in relationships. And I started working with folks from that more relational frame or relationship standpoint, because I think it covers off all areas of life. It touches on all areas of life. We are social beings. We are connected beings. Um, And really like that focus of relationship with yourself, as well as relationships with others, I think covers off of that, which is kind of my tagline and sort of my focus in the work that I do. And I also got into this line of work because I consider myself a love hound. I love love. I love connection. I love it in all forms. So I'm constantly surrounded in versions of that all day, which is my ideal. I love that term they use, a love hound. <laughs> like <that's... laughs> I can sniff it out and find it anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> it's like that whole other level. Like I remember when you're younger and they're like, oh, it's just puppy love. You're like, nah, I've graduated. I'm a love hound. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good play on words. I never thought of it that way. I just always thought of it as like how obsessed I am with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, and and you talk about like that relational aspect of how you do your work and how that's a part of who you are, but also professionally, like how you do it. And I love that that tagline that you have of helping you make meaningful connections with yourself and others. And I love how you start with yourself, because I think that's where a lot of our anxieties and our fears and all of these different things come out of when you're talking about sex and relationships is a lot of it starts with your own relationship with yourself. So I don't know if you want to like speak a little bit to that. Like, why is that so important to have like that phrase attached to your work? Well, I think it's a really neglected part of relationship. We often think of relationship in context to others and our connection with others, which is definitely a piece of it. Um, But this more forgotten piece of relationship with yourself, I think, is just as, if not more important sometimes, because if we go around in the world in a way that is only focused on a relationship with others, we're missing so much of the picture. And it can actually be very hollow sometimes in relationship with other people if we don't have that really solid foundation of relationship with ourselves. And just like from a pragmatic standpoint, relationship with self covers off so many different areas of the things that we may be struggling with. And so I really like including that because if I just say I'm only doing relationship work, then most people are going to assume that means the focus is on other people. So there's a pragmatic standpoint of, you know, well, I want to make sure that I can capture the relationship piece that falls within ourselves in addition. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. I, I love that when we did kind of our like our pre-interview chat and and I think, yeah, like that's where so many of the questions that I get from folks, you could distill it down to what kind of relationship do you have with yourself? And one of my key pieces of advice that I give to so many different people is to get to know yourself, but also masturbate. Like that's just kind of the main thing that I tell people. <laughs> Honestly, though, that really translates to relationship work, that that same advice, like the idea of self-pleasure or self-exploration is so important when we bring ourselves into relationship. How can we expect another person to relate with us if we don't even know us, if we don't know what we like or dislike, especially when it comes to things like pleasure, but in other aspects as well? Mm-hmm. Now, and and why I was so interested in chatting with you also because we have a mutual friend who was like, yes, you have to talk to Cassandra. Like she is the polyamory guru. And I have had so many questions from folks like about polyamory, about consensual non-monogamy and the list goes on and on. And I think 
maybe let's like break that down for listeners because I feel like it's a term that is thrown around a lot, but we don't actually fully understand it. So we'll think of this as like polyamory 101. Can we, can you just walk me through just a few of those definitions? So we're all kind of on the same page. Yeah, totally. But before I do that, I just want to say, I am not a guru. <laughs> I, I really am passionate about, I work with a lot. I have personal lived experience, but I don't want to be like pinned as an expert in this, partly just because I know that there's going to be folks who are like, wait a minute, that doesn't fit for me, which is going to always be the case. So I'm just someone who knows some stuff about it. Um <laughs> That's a great way of framing it because I feel like so often when you hear someone who's the expert, I'm using little bunny ears here, then if people don't hear themselves reflected in what that expert like offers, their advice that they offer, they're like, oh, well, I'm abnormal. And that's just that's so sad to think about. And I've been I've been reading Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, and she always comes down to you are normal. We're all different. We're all the same. We're all normal. And so I really I, lo- I love how you you flag that because it's there's so much to know and there's so much to explore. But you are, uh, shall we say, more knowledgeable than the general public, for sure. Yeah, I will accept that. Um, <laughs> and if you don't, if you hear something in here that doesn't fit for you or your experience, uh, you are the expert on yourself as well. So I do have knowledge. I do have an understanding. And so do you. I just want to put that out to to people. Okay, so polyamory 101, um, it can be shortened to polyam, not poly. Some folks in the polyam community still refer to themselves as poly, but a while ago, the Polynesian community said that they want their shortened label back. That's their term. Um, And so just to be mindful of that moving forward for everybody, if you are going to shorten polyamory, shorten it to polyam so that we're not stealing that label from the Polynesian folks. Okay, so I categorize it into two main branches. The first branch is kind of partnered non-monogamy and swinging. And the reason why I put that into a separate sort of branch is because it's probably closer to monogamy than it is to polyamory. And the reason being is because it's kind of focused more on having a sort of monogamous partnership And then within that sort of extending outward to more sexually focused activities. So for example, this is where you might have a play partner where you want to express yourself sexually with someone other than your primary partner. Um, And then in the case of swinging, you might have an agreement to sexually engage with others for recreational purposes uh, with your partner. And so I don't necessarily include that wholly under the polyamory category, although it may for some folks be included under the polyamory branch, but I kind of exclude it as a separate branch just because it's not always um, non-monogamy. And then the other branch is polyamory, which is the desire and the capacity to love, share emotional and sexual intimacy, and commit to more than one partner. And this is often more than a focus on sex, although that certainly can be a part of it. Right. I really like that foundation of of separating it because I think so often it gets lumped into either you're monogamous, there's two partners, that's it, and then there's everything else. And as you know from your work, it's far more complex than that. And it's like, okay, are we talking about like sexual relationships and that you and your partner are exploring those together? Is it, you know, separate from that or is it your entire relationship is built around the foundation of polyamory of having emotional and sexual relationships with other people and all of that variety in there. Exactly. Exactly. It's a spectrum, right? So, Mm -hmm. and like any spectrum, there's not really, I kind of have presented it that way as more like binary kind of things, but there's actually so much more fluidity in that. And there is definitely a lot of interplay between different points on that spectrum. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I should add to as well, under polyamory, there's actually a couple other terms that might be helpful for people to know or to understand. And I've kind of kept it to just different styles or models of relationship underneath the, the heading of polyamory. Right. 
So there's solo polyamory, which means that you don't necessarily have a primary partner where you have significant entanglement with them. You're not necessarily focused on having a serious or committed relationship that might not be the priority in your life. You may have multiple partners where you're dating and there's a lot less of that committed level. And that's sort of the definition of solo polyamory. Then there's polyfidelity, which as the name suggests, means that you have multiple committed significant relationships. And that might include a group of individuals forming a committed group relationship or other variations of. And really the focus on this style of polyfidelity is um, commitment. Mm -hmm. And then there's kind of a monogamous or non-monogamous combination style of relationship where one partner may want sex or additional partners and the other doesn't want that for themselves. And so sometimes people might choose this option of relationship if they want to accommodate some sexual differences or incompatibility in the relationship, but also want to remain in relationship with each other. Hmm. That's where you might have that more kind of um, combination style. Right. It's interesting because I feel I I listen to a lot of the Savage Lovecast with Dan Savage and I I love him because I feel like he can give advice in a very different way than I would ever be capable of doing, just the nature of being very different human beings. But two things I'm kind of touching on here. What he talks about quite often is poly under duress. And that's where, you know, one partner either wants to, and depending on the context, to open up a monogamous relationship or to explore polyamory more widely. And the other partner is not super interested but they want to remain in that relationship and so they kind of make they make concessions and negotiations around that and that's something that I find kind of um, interesting because you want to know that each partner in any kind of relationship and however many people are involved are making choices that work best for them like emotionally physically sexually so what I find interesting, what we've kind of talked about in your work is talking about that contract as well and I can imagine with Polly under duress, that might be something that would be really tricky to navigate. Absolutely. And I just kind of want to reel it back a little bit that I actually would view this difference between partners or between groups of folks potentially as just being another perpetual problem that needs a lot of care, attention, conversation, and kindness towards each other. And so it's just another one. There's so many different perpetual differences or perpetual points of conflict in relationship. This might just be another one. And so, yeah, we need to have some really, really kind, careful conversations about those differences. And in this case, you know, having one person who might be more non-monogamous and one person who might be more monogamous to have a really delicate conversation. And I do really honestly take it takes the form of a contract in my office. And that's not to say it's legally binding or anything in that nature, but it's very precise. It's very detailed in having conversations about what is this relationship going to look like? What is okay? What isn't okay for a relationship and discussing some really important boundaries within that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that conversation about boundaries just doesn't happen enough in relationships in general. And And in Esther Perel's uh, book, (laughs) State of Affairs, that's something that I just find so important that she brings up is regardless of the makeup of your relationship, uh, knowing what your boundaries are and clearly discussing those instead of having an assumption, because our assumptions on what is, you know, infidelity, what is cheating, what is faithfulness, what is commitment, and these are huge, complex terms that mean such different things for each of us. So I just, the idea of having a contract, I think, is just a really lovely way to to be very clear, I think, maybe from the outset of what the expectations are. Because, you know, from personal experience and from talking to a lot of different folks, you don't want to find out what your boundaries are once they've been crossed. And you know, inevitably that might happen. You might not know that you have a boundary, but it's a lot more uh, work and it can be a lot more painful if those boundaries are, yeah, as I said, crossed and then you have to like pedal back and work through them. Well, damage can be done, right? And I call those trust breaches or breaches of trust 
where you think that you have a common understanding or a common definition within the relationship of what is okay and what isn't okay. And then something happens from one partner or another partner um, that is a breach of that. And it was never actually discussed, which is often the case. Like we assume there is a shared understanding. We take it for granted that there's a shared understanding in when we're in relationship with other people about what is okay and what isn't okay when there really isn't. Often there is no discussion about that. And often there isn't a consensus on some of these things. And so while we're talking about polyamory might be an example of that, of what is within the confines of what isn't okay or what is okay, if we reel it back to more monogamous style relationships, there are so many things within that style of relationship that also can be considered trust breaches that we don't have conversations about. Things like pornography use or viewing pornography. That is something that actually can be considered a trust breach for so many people and that it is assumed that that's not okay in the relationship. And then something happens where a person, you know, finds out that their partner is using pornography or viewing pornography, and then that's not okay all of a sudden, um, or not all of a sudden, but that's not okay. And then they have a conversation about it when something has already happened. And so I come back to, it's like all relationship models would benefit from having that really precise conversation about what is okay and what isn't okay, what is included as a trust breach, what is okay in our relationship that's not a trust breach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think knowing the time and place to have those conversations as well, you know, if, if there's been a breach of trust, and then you're feeling vulnerable or hurt or everything else, that's not a space where it's really easy to to actively listen to someone and to be kind and receptive. And same sort of thing when people are experiencing and the nature of the podcast, I hear about their like sex things that are happening, not necessarily other relationship things, is that you don't want to be talking about it like in the bedroom when things are happening and emotions are high. It's like, you know, make sure one of the things I really recommend is being well fed. Uh, That's something that if I'm not well fed, I'm just not as kind of a human being. And I know that's, that's an experience many of us have. And so, yeah, choosing a place that is comfortable and safe and you're both feeling calm and ready to to talk about this in a way that it's going to be, it could be complex and it can be hard to break it down. But if you come at it from that that safe, supportive space, how much easier it is as opposed to being in a more volatile environment. Absolutely. When you feel betrayed or you feel like there's emotions running high, you're not going to have a productive conversation that is going to lead to, you know, walking away, having a really kind understanding of each other. It's probably going to be defensive. It's probably going to be guarded. It's probably going to be protected. And you're absolutely right. That is not the place to have those conversations. The place to have those conversations is preferably before in at the outset of relationship, right? To have some of these really important conversations before you decide moving forward to do anything in the relationship. And then if something has happened, to be able to heal from that first, you know, and preferably maybe with the help of a therapist, although I'm a little biased, uh, (laughs) that's really, really hard work there is healing from a trust breach. Um, And then moving forward, kind of coming up with a new agreement with each other, and you understanding with each other of what we want things to look like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm also biased because I'm like, yeah, go talk to a therapist. But I mean, again, there's like an accessibility issue there. But I think with uh, with COVID, we're seeing more and more like online options and things as well. Um, so being able to talk to someone like yourself who is well-versed in having these conversations with people because it can be really hard to start that conversation. And that's what you hear from a lot of people. They're like, how do I even start? Like a lot of the time, I would say most of the questions that I've gotten about polyamory or consensual non-monogamy is about, I'm in a relationship and I want to open it up. How do I bring that up to my partner? And I don't know if you want to give us like a few tips. There's so many things that I want to talk to you about, but maybe we'll start there and then we'll dive in a bit more. Yeah, so I actually look at from um, a framework of of if we're going to have this conversation, it's really, really important to maybe frame it in such a way 
that it's not, oh, I want this particular thing to happen moving forward, that it's actually a little bit, let's, let's pull back and talk about ourselves first. And so um, I think I talked about this previously with you is the idea of the GSERD matrix. Yes. Um, That's a starting point where I suggest folks for any conversation that they want to have, where they're speaking about something that they desire or want within a relationship is to pull back and first get a really good idea of yourself and come from that perspective. And so the GSERD is, it stands for gender, sexuality, erotic, and relational diversity. And the reason I say pull back to that is because that model kind of extends our understanding of humans and diversity within humans to be a little bit more all-encompassing. And so it's like, you know, typically it's been popularized as speaking to gender or sexuality. If you're going to share with someone else about yourself, that might be one aspect that you share about yourself. But this one includes that aspect of relational, you know, relationship. What's my relational orientation? And that means that we have a spectrum. We can have monogamy on one side. I'm more monogamous as a relational orientation. Or on the other side of the spectrum, I'm actually maybe non-monogamous as a relational orientation or more polyamorous. And so the reason why I say start there is because that is an easier place to share than I want to open my relationship up. That if we go to I want to open my relationship up, that's you've already got some preconceived notion of what it should look like moving forward. Whereas if you start with this is kind of who I am, let's have a conversation about that. I think that breeds a little bit more and more of an in-depth conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and it probably would feel less, it's not like an ultimatum. You're not saying, I want to open up this relationship in order to be with me and to stay with me, you have to be okay with that. And instead, and what I just found so groundbreaking about talking to you when you first were talking about GSERD, that relational aspect of it and having that as an aspect of your orientation is something we do not talk about and how and I've talked to some folks who are queer and polyamorous and they're like, you know, my identity as a polyamorous person as it, you know, that's my orientation, that actually if I had to choose, I would choose that over the identity of being queer. And obviously that's different for everyone, but I think knowing that there's so much variety in that and not just we all come to a relationship with that same orientation around that. I feel like that expand expanded my mind when we were first talking about that because I just didn't have the language to to talk about that and I think maybe that's part of what we're doing here right now is how do we offer people language to have this conversation and not have it totally like blow up their relationships I I definitely it comes back to that because when we view something as an orientation and I should add it may not be an orientation for some folks who want to open up their relationship they may not have a more non-monogamous orientation there might be other reasons why they want to open up their relationship but I do think it's an important thing to include because for one polyamory and being non-monogamous is often viewed as some sort of very like some sort of veering from what is the normal which is monogamy and I like looking at it as an orientation because it is it's an enduring pattern in some folks within us it's not something that we just decide one day and if we can have a conversation from that standpoint I think that we can get some more understanding whereas if we're just jumping to I want to open the relationship up if someone's not understanding that it could potentially be a relational orientation that we have Um, it could feel very much like, oh, this person's just jumping to infidelity or this person's just jumping to wanting to cheat or whatever that might look like for someone if we're coming from that like monogamy centric um, sort of standpoint. So let's come at it from actually a different standpoint. This may be a relational orientation that someone has. How do we honor that in our relationship? Let's have some conversations about that difference. Mm-hmm. And then could you talk a little bit about the E part of it as well, the erotic, because it's something that when we were talking before, you're like, the E, it always gets forgotten and we need to make sure. And so just kind of breaking that down, because I think a lot of people would conflate sexuality and sexual orientation with eroticism. And why is it important that those two are are separate categories in this framework? 
Yeah, it's really important separate category, both relational and erotic, because like I said earlier, gender and sexual orientation are the two that people probably know the most about and understand them, or maybe not fully understand, but understand them more about. Um, And the E stands for erotic. It's kinky, BDSM, fetishists, and maybe non-kinky, someone who's on the other side of the spectrum. It's the degree to which we kind of relate to those things. And there's a piece of eroticism that's kind of actually more cognitive, right? Like how often do you have that, those sort of thoughts or how often do you kind of relate to the world in that way versus someone maybe who doesn't have those thoughts as frequently or relate to the world in that way when it comes to kind of kinky or erotic thoughts. And then there's the the piece that's actually kind of more in action, which is like the kink scale almost. It's like, mm-hmm. how, how do you enact those erotic thoughts? Is it something that you do enact versus something you don't enact? And again, so all of these things are on a spectrum. An important part to include, because again, that may be an enduring pattern for someone, which would technically meet the definition of an orientation. Mm-hmm. Also, you think about the the depth and richness that you can have in a relationship if you're talking about all of these different things and how they work together, because I feel like so often it's like, oh, okay, so we found someone that, you know, we have complementary sexual orientations, this is who I'm attracted to, and boom, we'll just make it work. It's not really how it happens. So like being able to I think frame it around something you can explore and discover. I mean, discovering that for yourself, but then if you're in a relationship and thinking about, you know, expanding that in different ways, that can mean within that relationship and using this framework, which a lot of people would kind of conflate or associate just with polyamory or consensual non-monogamy. It's like, well, actually, can we explore this eroticism piece? Because similar to, you know, the orientation of being polyamorous, there are a lot of folks who identify as kinky, and that's their primary orientation, and not what other other orientations, like their sexual orientation or relationship. So I just, I think for anyone having this conversation with yourself, and then with partner or partners, what an amazing way to understand yourself better and to really what it comes down to for me is what a far more pleasurable and honest representation of yourself if you're able to get into all of those pieces. I mean, I'm a total sex nerd, but like anyone, I'm like, wouldn't you just want to know yourself better so that all of your experiences and relationships can just be better, be more pleasurable? And again, it comes back to, so that piece of relationship with self that's coming up here, do you really know yourself? And when you know yourself, can you have a really cool conversation about that with your partners or partner? Um, because that conversation, like I said, if framed within this sort of way, it's so much more fruitful than a specific sort of suggestion of how you want to start the conversation. Because when you find out, for example, and so this the G-CERT actually has a matrix that you can fill out. It was developed by Dr. Marky Twist, who's a wonderful, wonderful sex researcher, as well as um, educator. Mm-hmm. And they created this matrix and it's amazing. And so if you fill that out together, you can kind of see on, on this matrix, like where do you fall in some of these different categories and kind of overlap them and see like, wow, there's actually quite a bit of difference or there's quite a bit of similarity. Let's have a cool conversation about that. So for example, if someone's more kinky than the other partner, okay, what, like on that spectrum, where do we both fall and how can we have a conversation about that? Likewise, I come back to if someone is more monogamous, and the other person's more non-monogamous, you know, let's have a conversation about that and what that means for us. Mm -hmm. That's just so cool. Now, a part of this in, in, you know, your role as a therapist and having people come into you to negotiate contracts to generally talk about themselves in the relationship with themselves and others, can you kind of give me an example of like, what happens when someone comes into the room and sits down with you? I mean, like, obviously, there's going to be huge variety in that. But I think for myself, it's really important to kind of demystify that therapist experience, because it's it's something that we like need to normalize that we can talk to someone about our health in all of these different capacities. What's kind of a brief overview? Of what would that look like? Say I'm coming into your office? What would that look like? 
Well, I kind of have two streams. If someone's coming in more individually, then there's one stream with that. And then relationally, there's one stream with that. There is some crossover with that very first session, which is largely an information gathering session. It's really getting to know, you know, each other and who all is in the room. What does the relationship system look like if we have a constellation of folks coming in or a dyad, two people coming in? What does your relationship look like together? What are some challenges you've been experiencing lately or not so lately? As well as what is the history of your relationships? You know, along the way, what are some significant milestones that have happened? Tell me the story of your relationships as well as kind of an individual piece, you know, what's the story of you? Who are you? What's your family like? And just getting some of that background information, because that's really helpful moving forward to decide what we're going to do together. And a large part at the end is really collaborating on what we want the space to be like and look like moving forward. What sort of support and help do you imagine we spend time with together? How do you imagine this looking? Um, What are those goals that you have at the end of this? And that's kind of really where a main basic main session would look like. And then moving forward from there, we work together concertively to really focus on those concerns that you have mentioned in the first session and learn how to be in relationship with each other in a healthier way. And I'm super focused on action. I love insight. I I wouldn't be a therapist if I didn't. But a lot of the work that I do with folks is in action. How do we actually do relationship? How do we have relation healthy relationship skills in action? And so I get people to talk to each other in my sessions. I get them to focus on each other and use the skills that are taught and discussed together in this space. Having a third party who can help guide the conversations, help guide the framework to be a little bit more relationship and a little bit healthier with each other. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of putting that into action because, um, you know, as someone who like my background is in theater and so a lot of my educational piece is about, okay, it's not only let me tell you about, you know, this issue or idea. It's how do I embody that? How do I then use different theatrical things like how do we have a conversation or use role play or things like that to actually practice and put in action things that are recommended for us. And sometimes that's what I'll even recommend to people like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, a bit nervous to have this conversation with my partner. I'm like, well, why don't you talk to a close friend, someone that you trust, and you can practice game out what that might look like? Because that for me is what a beautiful tool that theater can offer us because we get to have a bit of a rehearsal before we put that into action. So I love that action piece because I think there's, you know, this this idea that you're going to go in and talk about your feelings the whole time, which obviously that's that's very important, but then it, that it gets very cerebral without being like, okay, tangibly, what do I do next? That's the most important part for me is that, you know, we can spend years getting insight on things and trying to get a cognitive understanding of stuff, which is so important. And the lived experience, our body experience of those things are just as, if not more important. What do I do with this in action later? And I actually, in session, it's so funny, Leah, there's so many crossovers between theater and the work that you do and therapy. I keep saying that, but... I call it workshopping it. And so we'll actually pause in session when an exchange is happening and I'll say, hey, let's let's pause and kind of reflect on what's happening in this moment. How do you want to move? How do you want to go moving forward? Knowing that right now you might be tending towards defensiveness or you might be tending towards a particular relational strategy that is not going to work as well. Let's use one that works a little bit better. And we can actually pause and have these conversations conversations like, oh, I really want to say this, but I'm not sure if that's okay. Okay, well, let's workshop it out a bit. Let's hear hear what you want to say and kind of make it a little bit kinder, a little bit more gentler in the way that you're going to say it. Oh, that, yeah, you're so right. There's so much overlap in that. And literally, because I was telling you before that I'm in my sexual health educator training right now. And 
that exact method. We use that in theater all the time. And I, my poor co-students in this, in this course with me, I was like, okay, I need to get two volunteers. It's two teenagers. They're at a party. One of them forgot to take the birth control pill that morning, but they've decided they're going to have sex. What's going to happen? And so they played out this whole scene and, you know, the partner was like, that's cool. We can just do other things. We don't have to have penis and vagina sex. And I paused this moment and said, is this realistic? They're at a party. They've maybe had a bit to drink. They've already decided they're going to have sex with each other. Do you think that's how this teenager would actually respond? And I just wanted to be like, yeah, in an ideal world, they would be like, I hear you. We don't want to take that risk together. Let's do this thing. I'm like, I don't talk like that. And I'm 28. So how do you expect a 16 year old to do that? So I just I love that idea of let's pause, let's hear some of that internal dialogue that's happening. And then if you vocalize that, let's finesse that. What is that going to sound like? And I I just love that. I mean, my dream would, you know, to like, we could do like a collab session. I would never do like drama therapy without a trained therapist in the room. But how amazing would that be to, you know, post COVID times to get together and be like, okay, Polyam 101 using theater. Let's go. I signed me up. I absolutely <laughs> adore that idea. And I think it would be so seamless because I come back to it's like whenever I hear you talking about your work, Leah, I'm like, wow, there's some major crossover there. Yeah, I think there's something about that, that like live action kind of piece. And then also the pausing and deconstructing and spending some time with and being a little bit more thoughtful about and having that that space to do so because in the real world, in relationship, things go quick, they go fast. And there's not a lot of opportunity to pause and kind of workshop and think about things a little bit more. So I think that's why I use this model in my work, because it's removed from what we typically have available to us in the day-to-day world. And it's so helpful to be able to have that space to be able to think and slow down and be more intentional about what we want to say to our partners. And really at the end of the day, to feel like we have a direction or movement forward because we often kind of get caught in loops in relationship. Mm -hmm. Or also like knee-jerk reactions as well. Like if someone says something, quite often I kind of I've started labeling it, you know, when someone says something and you you automatically want to respond with something and you're like, wait, this isn't my thought that's happening right now. This is like my socialization that's like poking through. And so I oh, I try and label those and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I actually feel that way. But my gut reaction was to say something that maybe wasn't that it wasn't very sensitive or wasn't very like aware of what's happening for that other person. And it's just that defensive move. And then I really am trying to catch myself doing it. And I, what I'd like to is that demystifying that I was talking to in a previous episode, talking to Jasmine Aziz, and she used to sell vibrators for a living. And she wrote this whole book called Sex and Samosas. And we were joking about how, oh, like we're in the field of sexual health education and people just think that we have great sex lives. Like we just walk around, you know, we orgasm a couple times a day and it's awesome. But to actually like demystify that and be like, actually, I'm just a normal human being. And I'm sure that must happen to you as well. People are like, oh, well, you just without without asking about personal details. I'm very, this is a professional conversation, Cassandra. But, uh, (laughs) But right, that assumption is made quite often. But to say, these are things that I'm working on. And we all have things that we're working on. Well, my favorite thing in session to speak about is my real life relationship examples, not to shift the focus of the session to me or anything like that or be inappropriate, but to really say like, yeah, I'm living it as well. I don't always do it right or the most relational way. We are the most triggered we probably will ever be in relationship. Mm. I hadn't thought of that. It's so true though. Like those are the for a lot of us, those foundational things in our lives. And something that I'm thinking about in terms of of COVID-19, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of stupidity of like people gathering and like not wearing masks and things like that. But at the same time, I have empathy of we have evolved as social beings. And as you said, at the beginning of our interview, like, we, we want to be together and to have connections with each other. And as complex and as messy as all of those things are, 
it's hard for us to stay apart. And so I just I feel for folks who are struggling with the this is what I have to do. These are the health orders versus this is fundamentally what I'm needing and my needing connection with other people. And I it's it's just so interesting, especially in terms of like the polyam world in a pandemic world is very complex. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to pose a query to you. So Dan Savage says polyamory is canceled during like COVID-19. Already, <laughs> listeners, you can't see Cassandra's face. She's like, mm, no, no, no. What I, I'm wondering, what is your response to that? I just think that's a very, it might be coming from, and I'm supposing, because I haven't heard, you know, 100%. Um, it's, it sounds like it's coming from more of a like solo polyamory or even like play partner kind of model of polyamory, where the focus is on maybe more um, kind of brief sexual exchanges or something like that. Whereas like, I hear that I'm like, oh my goodness, that's not really actually honoring what a lot of poly relate polyam relationships look like. They are so inextricably linked and connected. And then that's assuming that you may have a primary partner or something you may not in certain polyamory polyamorous relationships, the model of that relationship does not easily disconnect folks from each other and say, oh, it's canceled during this time. You might be raising a child together. You might have a mortgage together. You might have significant entanglement with other folks in your relationship. And so I hear that. I'm like, oh, that's coming more from that, like, you know, kind of surface, maybe sexually focused relationships um, saying you can cut those out. Yeah. Cut those out. That might be a little bit frivolous right now. That might be a little bit dangerous right now, but there are some model of polyamorous relationships. You can't just say, Oh, it's canceled right now. I hear that. And I kind of get a little, a little upset. (laughs) Right. Well, it's, I find it so interesting coming from him because he is in a polyamorous relationship. Like his husband has a long-term partner. And Dan is very good about not necessarily talking about his personal experience outside of his marriage. But, and I, and I wonder what those agreements are in their relationship. And I think very often that it is that conflation and that idea that polyamory and consensual non-monogamy is just these are flings or sexual attachments with other people that can easily be severed they're they're add-ons to your quote-unquote real relationship and that is not on with so many people in that community that's problematic that's so problematic that is a version of and amazing there's nothing wrong with that i want to be really clear but that's not the only version of polyamorous relationship that's just one of them. And you're so right that that is coming from that more monogamy centric almost or hierarchical model of relationship where we've got one person that we can rely on this one other person. They're my primary person. We've got significant entanglement and everyone else is superfluous. They're just kind of out here on the outsides and we can say goodbye for two years or whatever (laughs) this time period Mm -hmm. is going to look like for us. That is just not realistic for a lot of um, polyamorous relationships. So I strongly disagree with that. I don't know what lens or framework he might be coming from, but that's definitely not the lens or framework that I come from. Yeah. Well, and I think yours is coming from a far more inclusive lens. I mean, a part of it is that Dan Savage says things because he loves to get reactions. I mean, like he'll, he'll, that's why it's called the Savage Love Cast, because he will (laughs) say things like one of his like most famous lines is dump the motherfucker already. And you can just get shirts that say DTMFA, which I mean, to be fair for a lot of people, I mean, that's probably good advice. You know, I feel like we can put up with a lot of shit with people we probably shouldn't. Uh, but I feel like for for you and I, the nuance in that, there's so much complexity that you that you need to account for. I think it's damaging to the polyamorous community, though, because, again, it's really coming from a, a framework that maybe traditional monogamous monogamy centric society has of 
what these relationships look like. And so it's interesting that he's a part of the community and is also perpetuating or potentially um, reinforcing some of the ideas that general society has about these relationships. But like if we could take a peek in the lives of folks who are living in polyamorous community relationship, polycules, whatever you want to refer to these constellations as, they look like monogamy, monogamy centric relationships lives as well. They have very similar concerns, very similar issues and problems. They're not all, I don't know, it's not all that different. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like this is still very othering. That type of language is very othering and putting that community still in the outskirts and not actually acknowledging or recognizing that this community have lives that you know, may involve, like I said, child rearing or in other significant entanglements like paying bills. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think what you're, what, what I'm hearing is, is yeah, it's that othering of polyamorous relationships. And it's almost like labeling that as like an at-risk group because it's like, oh, well, you need to conform to the norm right now. And that is, you know, two people with one and a half children with a dog in a house because that's what the pandemic requires right now and not looking into the fact that there's so many other things that are a part of that. And on the flip side of that, something that I've had conversations with about, again, from, you know, talking to different people on like this podcast, but also in personal experience about how there's this assumption that folks who are polyamorous are like more highly evolved beings because they don't feel jealousy. And they're like, how do you deal with jealousy? I'm like, it's not like there are different species. This is not how that works. Like, jealousy is unfortunately something that many people, uh, I don't want to say all, but have to deal with. So I'm I'm interested in kind of that kind of flip side of like, well, they're like superhumans because they don't feel jealousy. No, (laughs) more othering. Uh, Folks in the polyam community feel everything and experience things very similar to folks in the monogamous community. And I really want to kind of reel it back. Like, I think you said, unfortunately, they experience jealousy. And I'm like, no, fortunately, Mm -hmm. we are human. And the way that I view emotion is that they all serve an important purpose. And jealousy is one of them. It tells you that there might be something that you need to discuss with your partner. And that's like really where the polyam community might be a little bit more normalized and done in a way where maybe they're not as reactive. That's not always the case. I recognize that. But in general, having those conversations is an important part of all relationship, but especially polyamorous relationship, um, because it may come up or be triggered a little bit more frequently. And yeah, I think it's a really good conversation to be had of what's going on for you and how can we maybe work together to figure out how to meet that need, hope, or dream. Yeah, I think a part of it is potentially, and I obviously can't speak for the polyam community because there's a huge spectrum in there, but I think the, the act of naming jealousy, of saying, I am feeling jealous right now is a huge part of taking away that power too that it that it has over you of being like hey I'm going to recognize this emotion that I'm feeling right now and let's work through like myself and with partners okay what does that look like and maybe this is some self work that needs to happen maybe this is a relational thing that needs to to we need to work through and uh, yeah as as kind of um an indicator that something needs to be addressed I loved how you're like just gonna reel that back a bit Leah I'm like yes call me on my things when I (laughs) that was my socialization poking through right (laughs) it's it's a lot of our socializations especially when it comes to emotions especially when it comes to jealousy there's some emotions that we have just deemed as completely unacceptable and I like what you're talking about Leah it's this idea of being um, responsive to our emotions versus reactive to them and taking a moment to sit with and understand what's going on for us and then verbalizing that to our partners in a way where we're not kind of putting it on them or getting them to have to be reactive to it as well. They can also be responsive to it, which is just, let's have a conversation about it. Let's understand it a little bit more and see if there's something that we can do together to help acknowledge this or recognize this or move forward from this in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, Cassandra, you've given me so much to think about. And like, I just, I'm so grateful to chat with you. And I, maybe the last thing I want to ask, and this is something that, I mean, I feel bad because I, I, I put my guests on the spot sometimes and I say, okay, this has been basically an hour long conversation. We've had a really fruitful conversation. But if you had to leave people with just just like one little piece of advice, if everything else goes in one ear and out the other, which I hope it doesn't because like I'm going to go back and re-listen to it, not only to edit, but to like learn. So what is if there was that thing you wanted people to to walk away with and to and to know what what would that be? Can I do two? I'm going to do two things because I'm greedy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first is that this is a relational orientation for some folks. This is not just a kind of sideline want to have for themselves just because they picked it one day. For some folks, they have had an enduring pattern of feeling capable of having a heart big enough to love and have relationships with multiple people. That's the first piece. This can be a relational orientation, just like any other orientation that we talk about. And then the second piece is, is that folks in polyamorous relationship have relationships that are very similar to the relationships that a lot of folks in monogamous relationships have. So we often put them in an other category. And I really hope that from this conversation, a piece of what we've touched on is that there's a lot of typical things that happen in these relationships that are not a part of them being polyamorous. It's just a part of them being in relationships. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Always coming back to that relationship. That's so great. Uh, thank you so much, Cassandra. I really appreciate your time and the fact that, yeah, you have just shared your wealth of knowledge with us. I mean, obviously, one hour does not do it justice, but I think a lot of things for people to to think about and hopefully help people on their own journeys of if polyamorous, monogamous, consensual non-monogamous, all along those different spectrums, it leaves gives us something to think about in terms of ourselves and how we how we form relationships with other people. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me because I've really enjoyed talking about this. I could probably talk about this like all day, every day, and I pretty much do. So (laughs) it's great. And I just, I do want folks to know more about this coming back to me, not being the expert, but to have some information out there that does normalize and create better understanding for people, because this is a very stigmatized part of the population. And I hope that in the future, that won't be the case because we're spreading some information like this. Yeah, absolutely. And all of Cassandra's details, including her very aesthetically pleasing website and Instagram account will be linked in the episode description. So please go check that out. Because even if you just want to have what would you call that a bit of an eyegasm, you're like, this is this is lovely. (laughs) Um, Love that. I really hope people do have an eyegasm. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to Dr. Sari Van Anders and Will Byshell, all about how our theories of sexuality should actually reflect our real lives. As always, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leotidy. I want to hear your questions and your voice on the podcast, so don't hesitate to get in touch. Even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. Hey, and if you like what you're hearing, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.